Now this morning I want to speak to you about unity. Church unity. Now when I was young and uh, my, my parents mentioned they wanted to talk to me about unity in the family or about living together, I started counting minutes. I started thinking to myself, how long is this going to take? And uh, I was making guesses in my head about which sibling has been telling tales, uh, perhaps to my parents, about this sort of thing, what I've been up to. Uh, it's fair to say that the topic of unity does not fill many of us with excitement. Unless you work for the United Nations, or you are like the late Paddy Ashdown, you're obsessed with, uh, with, with peace, as, as, as they might say. But um, it doesn't excite us, and I think the reason it does not excite us is because we talk about unity only when there is disunity. And no one listens because we are already knee-deep in disunity. Well, I can assure you this morning that the only reason I'm talking about unity today is because we are nearly at the end of our series in the Psalm of Ascent. I have no other reason uh, to talk about this topic, pressing reason, than the fact that it is in the Scripture and we've come across it. We are now in Psalm 133, and this psalm is about unity, unity of God's people. The psalm answers a simple question, a simple but very important question. What is unity, and how can we have it? What is unity and how can we have it? This psalm, of course, was written by King David. King David knew a lot about unity. Uh, Most of his reign was a peaceful reign. Uh, God gave him peace on all sides. But David also knew about disunity. Because, of course, you remember, you may remember the issues he had of rebellion, the rebellion of his his son Absalom. So David knew about unity and disunity. So David is equipped uh, to speak about unity, but not only as a king, but as a man who's inspired by God to write out this scripture. And so this psalm answers that question, isn't it? What is unity and how can we have it? And I think David gives us two answers to what unity is. And those answers are in front of you in your outline. Two answers. First of all, unity is a good thing. And then secondly, unity is a God thing. It's something God does, not us. Okay? So those are the two things. Now let's take those things in order. First, unity is a good thing. That's the first thing we see in this psalm. Now, on the surface, many of us would agree with that, wouldn't we? All of us desire unity with other people. Even Extinction Rebellion, who are blocking our roads, want unity. You may be surprised about that. Because they are saying, of course, they want unity in the nation in insulating our homes. So we can tackle what they see as a climate crisis. They think unity is uniting around their cause. On the other hand, many of us are not happy with Extinction Rebellion uh, because they are uniting on our roads, right? We see their unity as evil unity. We want them to be disunited, right? That's what we would prefer. We would want them to be a disunited bunch. So you can see there's a problem there, isn't it, about unity. It's tricky, right? So when we say unity is a good thing, we must be very clear what we mean by unity, and we must be very clear what good to who, right? Now, unity, first of all, in this psalm is unity of the people of God. So this psalm really isn't about unity at home, um, unity at the workplace, unity in the country, 
It's actually very specific. You, know, you can apply the lessons to those things, and I'm sure you might decide to apply them to that. But this is specific about unity of the people of God, the covenant family of God, the people whom David calls here, what does he call them? Brothers. This one, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, strictly speaking, King David is talking about Israel when he says brothers. They were, in fact, a nation of 12 brothers. That's Israel. The sons of Jacob, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's initially talking about the people of Israel. But this verse also applies to us, you see. Because the church is the new Israel of God. It's the new people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The true king of Israel. We are the new community of God. And the Bible is saying here, true unity is not found in the world. The world doesn't know true unity. True unity is found in the people of God who live and share together as one true family. That is the picture of true unity. David is saying it is good for God's people to be united like that. Good to whom? Well, it is good for us, of course, to be united. We'll see in a moment. But fundamentally, I think David is talking about good from God's vantage point. Fundamentally. Because something in the Bible can only be declared good, you see, if God says that thing is good. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. God's evaluation in the scripture is that it is unity that is good from his vantage point. Right? Now, when Big Pharma produced COVID-19 vaccines, Her Majesty's government decided for everyone in the country which vaccines were good for people to take. Right? So the government said, AstraZeneca, good. Pfizer, very, very good. But don't go near the Chinese or Russian ones. We don't know about those. The government was saying, no, that's not necessarily the good vaccine, right? The government, if, what I'm saying is it's not to give you my opinion about vaccines. I'm simply saying the government was the authority of what was good in the country with respect to this area of vaccines. In the same way, God is the supreme lord of the universe. So just as the government decides in the country what is good, right? You may not like that, but that's what he does, right? God decides in his world, including all of us, in his universe, which is everything that exists, he decides what good is. He is the only authority of what good unity looks like. And here God, through his inspired poet David, is telling us the unity of God's people is a good thing. It is good to God. God wants his people to live in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, we should immediately be clear that not all unity is good to God. Right? Not all unity is good to God. And not all division is evil. It is after all God who separated light out of darkness. It is God who said, come out of them and be his separate. I like the King James when he says that. Be his separate. 
Because it emphasizes, I think, the he, right? There are times when we must be like Caleb and separate ourselves from other people. There are times when we must be like Jotham and take a stand against Abimelech. Not all unity in churches is from God. Indeed, not all unity in the country is from God. A lot of unity we see is actually evil unity because it promotes sin and rebellion against God. And we as people of God must separate ourselves from such. Indeed, it is a sin for us to unite ourselves to ungodly unity. The unity that is not centered around the word of God. The unity that doesn't exalt Christ as king. We must separate ourselves from such. So let us be clear. We're not talking about the unity that is evil. We're talking about the unity that is from God. And indeed, there are many situations. Therefore, we would say, when division in the church is ungodly before God. When division is driven by human sin and rebellion. For example, people in churches divide over things like wearing hats, right? You may think that's a controversial thing for me to say. Or they may divide over a Bible version. Or a war paint, right? Or who sits where? (laughs) My brother is laughing. I've I've, I've seen that before, right? The list of things we divide over is endless. And of course, people don't just divide over things. People often divide in groups according to age, according to ethnicities, according to political opinions, or socioeconomic classes. These things take place in churches. And often the division in churches are personal, aren't they? Relationships can become fractured. Someone has said something we don't like, and now we avoid them completely. That's active division, isn't it? Sometimes, of course, the division is passive. And I think for us as a church, this is an area we need to watch out for. What do I mean by passive division? Where people are united only on paper, right? No one is sending each other nasty emails. No one is fighting as such. But it's passive division because, you see, no one is truly caring for each other. No one is living in conformity with verse 1. Everybody, you know, they just treat the church as a sort of retreat. Sainsbury's, a unity of Sainsbury's. You know, everybody goes and shopping. No one is fighting. I haven't seen fights at Sainsbury's yet. Some people live like that in the church where they just go and everybody is sort of, you know, individualized. Well, that's passive division in the scripture. That's not the unity described in verse 1. So these and other forms of division are ungodly. When we live like that, we are rebelling against God's desire to live in practical unity. We are just as bad as those who are promoting evil evil unity. The Bible says God hates those who promote disunity. Because such people are not really his true children. Proverbs 6 verse 16 to 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates Seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plan, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So even unity that 
Even some people create division, of course, not only through, as I said, are passive and active, but, you know, perhaps more passively, even silent unity, preaching error, for example. That is a source of disunity because it's driving people apart. It's not rooted in Christ. All of those such causes of disunity are ungodly before the Lord. God says clearly there, hates. That's a strong word, isn't it? The one who sows discord among brothers. Doctrinally, passively, or actively. Disunity is serious. And I think the main reason many of us don't seem to care about being united in heart and mind is that even though we profess Jesus, we are worldly at heart. That's the problem. The problem is that people in the church are mostly worldly at heart. You see, the motto of our society is what? Individualism. The world says, I am the center of the universe. It says to us, look, life is about you, so focus on you, not others. By all means, attend the church. It is good for you, but do it for you, you see. Only relate to the church and everything else in your life for your benefit. And when you are among other Christians, make sure that you insist to be who you want to be. No one has a right to tell you who you should be. And that's why many of us, as we speak to people in the church and preach the gospel, it is very hard to pastor a church in that way. Because people are not interested in what the Word of God says. They have swallowed individualism. And the result is that even if we hear on Sunday that being united with one another around Christ is a good thing, it is actually difficult for us to live out this unity. Knowing that unity is good to God won't make us pursue unity. It won't make us obey Paul's injunctions to maintain the unity of the, the, the bond of peace. Knowing that unity is good to God will make us pursue unity. Why is that? Well, because being united, you see, often feels like a loss for us. All of us, we've swallowed in the culture. We are individualists at heart. But beloved, if you are a true follower of Jesus this morning, you need to accept that you cannot truly worship God and honor God without true unity. I'm talking about true biblical unity with these people. You see, God is not just interested in your private prayers. His plan set out in the Bible is to have you in a united community that worships Him with heart and mind, united around the very word of God in Christ. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 2, verse 1 to 5. I just want to give you that vision that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 2, verse 1 to 5. Of God's vision for his people. It's a wonderful passage. Isaiah 2 verse 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O acts of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's God's vision. Do you see it there? There's nothing there about me and my Bible. It is all about a united worshiping community. That's God's vision. That's God's eschatological vision for his church in Christ, united around Christ. True biblical unity. And that is what David is saying here in verse 1, isn't it? Of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Why does God prize our unity so highly? Why is it a good thing to God? Well, there are many, there are many reasons. I mean, we could think of the theological reasons, the fact that God himself is united. is a unity of three persons in one. We could think of... Um, other theological reasons that God created us in unity from the very beginning as one family and therefore being united conforms to his original design. But the reason David gives us is none of those reasons, very good reasons. The reason he gives to us here is very, very strange. He says God wants us to, be, to enjoy our life with him. That's why he wants us to be united. Unity is good to God, says David, because it is good for us. That's what David is getting at in this psalm. And we see this from two illustrations he gives us uh, in verse 2 and verse 3. So in verse 1, he states the point. Then in verse 2 and 3, he gives us illustration that states the point. The first illustration there in verse 2, look at that. Is that it comes from Aaron, who was appointed by God as high priest uh, during the Israel's wilderness years. Look at verse 2. What is unit like? Unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. You see, when Aaron was appointed as the high priest of Israel, the first high priest, Moses poured oil on Aaron, didn't he? The oil was a symbol of God setting apart Aaron as high priest. Now, the job of the high priest was to represent the people of God before God. To offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. So that God would forgive their sins. The only way for Aaron to be appointed a high priest was to be anointed by Moses with oil. If he was not anointed, he couldn't do the job of the high priest. And if there is no high priest... Well, there cannot be any acceptable sacrifices to God for the people. And so Israel will remain in a state of rebellion against God. So when David says unity of God's people is like oil poured over Aaron, it means that without unity we cannot enjoy a blessed life with God. It doesn't mean we're not God's people, it just means that we can't truly enjoy what God as designed for us as his people. That's the first illustration. The second illustration is also making the second point. It's about the dew of Ammon. Look at it there in verse 3. Mount Ammon was the highest mountain 
uh, in Israel. You remember when we went through Mark chapter 9, that Mount Emmon is where Jesus was transfigured. Look at verse 3. What is unit like? Well, unit is good because, you see, it is like the dew of Ammon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Ammon has snow all year round, right? And it produces very heavy dew, right? And this makes the water around, if you like, this dew uh, makes the area around Mount Ammon very fertile because, of course, the dew melts sifts through the rocks, forms into river channels, and it waters the area around it. So we have this picture of this mountain in a very arid place, in a very barren land, that actually remarkably has fertility. That's the image David wants us to have. It's like an oasis in a desert, basically. David is saying the unity of the people of God, you see, is like the heavy dew of Mount Hermon. It brings springs of fertile blessings to the people of God. The unity of an orchestra produces a good song. The unity of a football team wins games. Where the unity of God's people brings divine blessings on us. That's what David is getting at. Unity is a good thing because... It is good for us. And this is the answer to our individualism, isn't it? Many of us don't live in true unity with the people of God because we want to take care of ourselves. Well, this verse turns our culture upside down. It says, you won't live a blessed life by living selfishly. No, you enjoy life by living with the true people of God and putting them first if they are truly God's people. Now, I know this is hard for some of us to stomach. We've never experienced tangible unity in a church. We wear deep scars of church disunity. I have been in a disunited church myself. Many of us only know church as a fighting club or a place with no real relationships. You just come in, you go out. So the idea of blessing through church unity sounds like what Klaus Schwab would say, stuff of fantasy, (laughs) right? It sounds like stuff of fantasy. Well, God knows that. God knows that's how you feel about church unity. And that's why he has brought you today to remind you that there really is true blessing in a truly united people of God. Because you see, this is God's design for his people. And that brings us to the second truth we learn in this psalm. The first truth is unity is a good thing. The second and final truth I just want to share from this psalm is that unity is a good thing because it is a God thing. Unity among us is not something we create. That's evil unity. True unity is something that God does himself among the people of God as he regenerates them, as he brings them to a biblical understanding of what it means to be among his people. And the good news of the Bible is that God has purposed this true unity among us. That's what David is saying. King David makes this point here with the two illustrations we looked at. Just look at them again, those two illustrations. First of all, he says it's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron, running down 
on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Ammon which falls on the mountains of Zion. What do these two illustrations have in common? What do you notice there as you read them? When you read the Bible, you need to be noticing things that are being repeated. What does it have in common? Well, in both cases, the image used to illustrate comes from the top down, doesn't it? The key word, the key repeated refrain, even in some version, is descend, descend, descend. In our version, it says running down, running down, and falls down. The oil runs down from the head to the beard to the collar of the robes, doesn't it? The dew falls down from Mount Hermon and also falls down on the mountains of Zion. On the high mountain of Hermon and on the lower mountains of Zion. The point David is making is that unity starts high and moves down. True unity starts from God in heaven and then comes down to his people. There is no point in us trying to unite. Only God can make us united through his word and Christ. Unity does not come by human hands. It is a God thing. It is a gracious gift of God to his true covenant people. That's important. There cannot be unity in a church if people are not regenerate. It is a gracious gift God gives to his covenant people. And the good news is that God has already committed himself to give us this blessing of true unity because he has already blessed us with it. That's what verse 3 says. Look at verse 3. For there, he says, the, the final sentence, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The first key word there is for, which it simply means because. Because there the Lord has commanded the blessing. The other key word is commanded. It means authorized or decreed. But notice what is very important. It is in past tense. So what is David saying? What David is saying there is this. Our unity as the people of God is a real blessing from God to us because we, already, we are already his covenant people forever. And I make that point that he's covenant people forever because, you see, when David says life forevermore there, he's not really talking about individual eternal life. The context of this psalm is not about the individual, it is about the people. David is saying God has sovereignly blessed his people to be his eternal community. David is saying the unity of God's people is a good thing because it is a God thing. It is, comes from God who has already made us his covenant people, his eternal people. Now, when David wrote this psalm, this, this earth-shaking truth, people would not have fully grasped what David was saying. An eternal community on earth? Really? But we know on this side of the cross is that what David wrote a thousand years before Christ was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Unity came down to earth. The Lord Jesus is God coming down to us to be our eternal unity. He has come to make us his true spiritual family forever. 
And that's what we read, didn't we, in Ephesians chapter 2 there at the beginning. If we go back to that, Ephesians 2, verse, just read particularly verse 18 there to verse 22, just to remind us. The Bible tells us that for through him we, Ephesians 2, 18, 22, for through him we both have access in one spirit through him that is Christ to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. We are not ships passing each other by night. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, the church being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The amazing good news of Jesus is that if we trust in Jesus, we are already eternally spiritually united with him and with each other. The church is a new community of God, you see, with people with new hearts and new minds born by the Spirit. Hearts that are united forever as a family by the Holy Spirit. That's the amazing thing to hear is that I'm born again. I know that. <laughs> if you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit, that, the same Holy Spirit who lives in me. So if we're truly regenerate here, those of us who are truly regenerate here are already spiritually united in Christ. And because we are already spiritually united in Christ by the Holy Spirit, God is now growing us, you see, in Christ until we become outside who already are inside, until we reach that perfect unity when Christ comes in glory. Paul, you should read Ephesians, uh, I would say, because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11 to 13, just to address this point, because Paul talks about this in Ephesians. He says this uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 13, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, he's expanding on the passage we just read, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until when? Until we all attend to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness. Because that's the goal. Christ is the means of our unity and is the goal of our unity. Right? And the Bible therefore goes on to say that one day all of us who are truly in Christ will reach this, won't we? Because we'll live together as a perfect community in the new heavens and the new earth when the Lord Jesus comes. And we see that vision in Revelation 22 verse 1 to 5. This is a final reference. Let's just look at that. Revelation 22 verse 1 to 5. The final book of the Bible says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each season. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's a biblical picture. Isaiah 2.15, fulfilled now uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in glory. So when we think of the the scripture as a whole, and we think particularly Psalm 133, what the Bible is teaching us is that true unity is not only a good thing that pleases God and blesses his people, it is a God thing in Christ to us forever. Or we might even say, true unity is a good thing that pleases and God blesses God's people because it is a God thing in Christ to us forever. That's essentially what this passage is teaching us. Unity is a good thing. And unity is a God thing. So how should we live in light of this truth? Well, just two things how we should react to what God has taught us this morning. First of all, let us be thankful that because we are in Christ, we already have true spiritual unity from God. The first response to the teaching of God's words must always be thankfulness for what we have already in Christ. Before we even think about doing anything, this passage is saying, Behold, acknowledge, be delighted for the unity that you already have in Christ. We are living in a world where people are searching for belonging, aren't they? This is why people join all kinds of strange clubs or spend hours on the internet. People want a true community where they can truly dwell, right? We are created for deep, meaningful, united, and enduring relationship. That's why we are searching for these things. We do not just want acquaintances. We are created to want love and unity. We don't just want a job, right? We want a family. We all long for true depth. This is how God made us. This is how God made us. You know, isn't it amazing that when God made Adam and Eve, the Bible says... And the man and his woman were naked and not ashamed. The man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. That is true unity, isn't it? That is true unity. That is true belonging. A perfect community of true belonging. Where we can be ourselves and fully welcomed and united and dwelling together with one another. And the Bible says we can't be ourselves in a fallen state. We need Christ to make us truly who we are meant to be. We need Christ to make us truly united. And God in Christ has made us truly united. We have been fully welcomed in, in, in Christ as one, as Paul says, spiritually. The Bible is saying that the unity that the world is searching for, we have it. True spiritual unity. And there's more for us to come in Christ. Yes, in the here and now, we only see a glimpse of this unity. Because you see, the church, though it is united in Christ, is still being transformed, isn't it? We still rub each other the wrong way. But there is no doubt about our destination. We are being transformed every day into this community that will be totally perfect. Where we will be with each other without shame. We will be totally perfect, totally united. And so let us not wait 
to thank God until we get to heaven. Let us thank God that we already have this already. God has already commanded it for us in Christ. Let us thank him for the true spiritual unity we have now. So thankfulness must be your first response. Just thank God today for what he has given you already in Christ. Yes, there are times when you, you, even with other believers, you feel very distant from them or you've had a bad experience. But remember the fundamental thing, that if you're truly regenerate, you are already spiritually united with true believers in Christ. So thank God for that. Secondly, and this is the second and final application, Because we already have this true unity from God in Christ, let us start living now as people who are already united in Christ. We are already, as I said, spiritually united in Christ, so we must now start living out our spiritual unity in practice. We must maintain our unity outside. Where there is discord or distance among us in this fellowship, we are rejecting our identity in Christ. We are choosing to live contrary to who we truly are in Christ. The truth is that no true child of God is ever happy disunited with another believer. I've been there. Like When I'm not getting along with a particular brother, it just doesn't work for me. It ruins my prayers. It just makes life very, very difficult. That's why I want to be in a peaceful church. right? Because I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. The Holy Spirit in me constantly says, Chola, you've got to repair the breaches. Well, at least do it from your perspective. Make the initiative. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, right? Because you see, the Holy Spirit who lives in us has given us this wonderful vision of true unity, right? And in a, now we groan. We long to be perfectly united. So any disunity we have, the Holy Spirit works on it to ensure that we deal with it. So this morning... Let each one of us examine ourselves this morning where in our lives we are not promoting the unity of Christ in the life of his church. For some of us, this means searching our hearts for any evidence of having a fractured relationship or heal feeling towards anyone in the fellowship. Is there anyone you feel uncomfortable towards? Well, take the initiative and approach the person to genuinely resolve any discord. Now, this is very hard for us to do, but the key is to remember that we are members of the same body of Christ and those who offend us belong to Christ. When we remember that God loves them, if they are truly regenerate, and cares about them as his very own, we will plead with God to help us love and care for them too. So my application is very narrow. It only relates to people who are truly regenerate. There's a different approach you need to take for non-believers who are not regenerate. Indeed, non-believers found in the church. Because Paul says, not everyone in the church has faith. So if if you're truly convinced they're true born-again believers, remember that God loves them and ask the Lord to help you take the initiative to, um, to approach them. For many of us, of course, the issue is not active discord. The issue for us is that we are passively disunited. And I think this is a particular issue for us as a church. I praise God for the unity we enjoy as a church. As far as I know, there's no one sort of picking up a knife. Uh, We praise God for that. But I'm concerned that as a church, we are 
passively disunited. We are spiritually united, but we are not relating to each other as a family. Yes, we are not fighting with each other, but we are not dwelling together. That's the honest truth. We are not dwelling together. And each one of us must ask ourselves where we are coming up short in this area. Yes, quick to remind me, we are making progress, and he always reminds us, we are making progress. But the truth of the matter is that we've got a long way to go for us to truly even feel we're making progress to come to this one, right? And so all of us must ask ourselves, where are we not relating to other believers as truly dwelling together? You know what's lovely about dwelling together, the image? Dwelling together means like you've abandoned your flat and, and the other person abandoned the flat and they live together, they got married, isn't it? They get married, they're dwelling together. That's the image, yeah? Dwell together. It is an element of surrendering our personal preferences. The, the image here, I think, it comes from marriage. I think that's sort of where you are truly one. You dwell together as one. What I'm trying to say is that in a church where people dwell together, it is a church in which people surrender their personal preferences in order to honor Christ and Christ himself. They are not just in church to tick the box on a Sunday. They are in it, heart and mind. And that's what I'm trying to get at that. As a fellowship, our prayer should be to become like that. And each one of us must ask ourselves, where are we coming up short in this area? Where am I trying to fit church into my life rather than fitting my life into church in Christ? Because God wants us to be truly united and present with each other. Not just to be united on paper, but in practice. So let us all come before God today and ask him, Lord, where do you want me to be committed to your people? Where am I being a divider of your people? Where do you want me to repent? And ask other believers to show you areas where you're not truly united with others in the fellowship. Beloved, I want to end by... Asking you to imagine how our fellowship would look like if all of us were truly thankful for the spiritual unity in Christ and were truly living out the vision of this psalm. I think we would become a community where all material and spiritual resources are shared. Don't worry, Baruch. We wouldn't be communists or anything else like that, but we'll be genuinely like Acts 1, 2, well, Acts, period. Where no one lacks anything because we are one family. Where, one, where if one person suffers, we all suffer with them. Where one rejoices, everyone rejoices. Where people experience true love in Jesus. Where people prioritize the teaching of God's word as a central focus, not their personal preference. Where people are active in taking the Lord's Supper, praying, studying God's words, and evangelizing on our streets. A united church where people actually want to attend. Where drug addicts, prostitutes, runaway kids, LGBT, gang members, the homeless, find the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent from their darkness and trust in him alone. You know what? That sounds to me like the delightful unity of Psalm 133. That's how it sounds like to me, doesn't it? where brothers are dwelling in unity. 
And as I said, in Christ we already have this spiritual unity. But let us desire for it to be a practical reality, my friends. Let us want this unity. Let us pray for it. Let us seek God for it. Because unity is a good thing. And it is a God thing. Amen.